James and Masensi uh, were graduates here of the Bible College a few years ago. He'll tell you a little bit of his story, and now God's using them on the island of Ulithi. And uh, I had a chance to go with some of our fifth-year guys last year and just had a couple of hours on Ulithi, but it's exciting to see what God's doing, and uh, he's going to show you some pictures and just tell of God's glory all around the islands tonight. All right, James. All right. I hope you're awake. <laughs> Good evening. How are before I uh, start with the presentation, I personally and my family, we want to thank you, Harvest, for your uh, friendship, your support, and especially your prayer. We see God work because the people pray. So thank you very much. And let me try to figure out how to do this because I'm, I'm really bad when it comes to and a uh, special thank you to Sebastian for helping me put together this thing, okay? So our ministry starts when I actually start just getting to know my, uh, now my better half. But that time we're still dating as uh, HBBI students. And God burdened my heart with a mission, so I told her to pray with me about that. And... About six years ago, God answers that. And that's the first picture uh, for me heading out to Eulity on that ship. And they're going to come on the plane uh, later that week. So God answers our prayer. So that's right there is the heart. And that's where my heart is. No, see, it shapes like a heart, right? You don't, you don't find that. That's God's island back in, yeah. Yeah, yep. So that's called, that, that island is called Flalop Ulidi. Um, the population is about uh, 300 people. Uh, that's, the, that's one of the outer islands that has the high schools where outer island students come there for uh, high school. And... You guys remember the typhoon called Mesak, right? I cannot forget that time. Because uh, we just moved there about a year there, and then Mesak came. And on the picture, so it's looking at the screen up here, it's on the left. So that's our first house when we moved to that property that the chief gave us. And... Uh, Typhoon Mesak decided to come and destroy it. So uh, it was one of the most depressing time in my life, as well as my family. And literally, I I was thinking about quitting, and I'm not gonna, I'm not proud uh, to admit that. So I, I the thought of quitting come to my mind, and I say, ah, this is not worth it. But God allowed me to uh, build that fancy house right there. Yeah, yeah. Hey, when you don't have anything, you'll be grateful for somewhere to put your kids. Amen? Uh, now, there are some God's people in here. <laughs> well, so that, that right there is where the ministry actually started. See that? This little... Uh, porch there, we go and collect around 
Uh, people's trash are other people's treasure. So those people's trash, the tin roof, are my treasure. Because <laughs> I get to build my uh, family a little place to hide. And that's where we actually start our Bible study. Uh, and God brought some people for that. That picture right there is how Mesak literally, I put the word demolish. Literally destroy the island of Falala. And then some of you can remember the guy in the middle, right? Because he's, he's right here. And I, I asked his permission, and I think he said no, but... <laughs> because that's the first boy that... Anyway, during Mesak, the typhoon that I was planning to quit, God allowed me to have the opportunity of witnessing to this boy. And his name is Carlos. He's at the Bible College now. Uh, and this side is the most beautiful woman on earth <laughs> with the most beautiful daughter, uh, Masensi and Jamie. And that picture right there, that's Carlos' mom, Carlos' uh, brother, and his grandpa. Uh, Carlos' mom passed, but she accepted Christ as her Lord and Savior. She, um, because God brought the typhoon and destroyed the house, planning to quit, but God, God's grace allowed me to uh, go through that. This lady came one day and joined my Bible study one Sunday, and I was preaching. Uh, remember afterwards, she was saying that she never heard Romans 5, 8. But God commended his love toward us. While we're still yet sinner, Christ died for us. And uh, uh, praise the Lord, God, uh, God got a hold of her heart. And Carlos' grandpa, the one with the beautiful lay from God's island, uh, his name is Simeon. And just this year, because of that lady's testimony, and because Carlos coming here and they saw him when he went back for the funeral, saw a difference in his life. Now, January 2020, I get excited about this because this is God's work. That man and his whole family start coming for the Bible study. And then, like we've been talking about um, before I came here, I always hear this from my pastor, and Pastor Mark usually tells me this thing. In order to reach a community, you have to reach an individual. But when I came here, I saw the pastor keep saying, in order for you to reach the billion, you have to reach the one across the street. And so I put that thing because I think that's a vital part of our mission uh, statement. In order, f uh, in order to reach the billions, you have to reach an individual. Because how can you make $100 if you don't make a dollar? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, so you can tell, uh, you remember that beautiful house that I showed you earlier? God, God um, 
brought the typhoon allow us to go through that trial. And then I don't pay one cent for this thing. I don't pay a penny for this house. The God used the U.S. government to provide this beautiful house. <laughs> Yeah? So, <laughs> and then, now, that's, uh, some of you remember Greg Royston uh, came and helped Pastor Mark, and I uh, put on that uh, porch right there. And that's, right now, that's our church. That's where we're having our Bible study. And, um, I'm really bad at taking pictures, so I didn't bring any picture. But somehow, Jackson, a former HBBC graduate, um, I asked him if he can fill in for me while I come here for this mission conference. So he took some picture, and that's actually last Sunday, right there. That last Sunday, Jackson preaching. So uh, while we're here, God is doing work in unity. And you can see, uh, it's right now, that's where we're having our Bible study. So uh, please continue to uh, pray for the work in unity. Because definitely, uh, slowly but surely. And then, that's our family uh, life first. Uh, Joshua twenty four fifteen at the end of the first, where Joshua is... Uh, at the end of his life, and he's telling the Israelite, uh, choose you this day whom you will serve. And then at the end of the first, he say, because I already make up my mind, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So though trials come, though uh, temptation may come along the way, but yet the Lord is faithful and he will allow us to go through life. So that's my beautiful family. Uh, if my picture is not there, then it will be more beautiful, but it's, it's all right. I'll, I'll bear with that, okay? So uh, I hope you can bear with the picture up there. So thank you very much for praying. Please don't stop uh, praying. Continue pray for the work. And that's all the slide that I have, so thank you. Take your Bible tonight. Let's go to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, and this is our last message together. I will do as I've done every night and uh, review with you what the Bible says in relationship to the untold billions and, and, and then how we should respond scripturally. We've emphasized over and over each night that untold billions of unbelievers remaining still untold is indeed a clarion call, a clear, a crystal clear call to untold millions of believers to do everything possible to get the gospel to them. And so we've looked at a number of ways that we should then respond in relationship to that, that the very first thing that must happen in our hearts is God must do a work in our own hearts to burden our hearts for the, for the needs of the world, uh, that we would have a love for the lost. Uh, how grateful I am for that song that the men sang that reminded us of the fact that hell is real and that people are headed for hell. And the only way to escape the fires of hell and the condemnation of God, just condemnation of God upon sin, is, is through the gospel and through believing that Jesus Christ died as the payment for sin. And so I trust that your burden for the lost has been deepened by our 
focus on that, especially in that first message. And so by loving the, the lost like the Lord does, secondly, by spreading the gospel so that members of every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation will someday worship at the feet of Jesus. Missions exist because worship doesn't. John Piper put it that way, and we focused on that briefly on Sunday night. Secondly, or thirdly, by helping in the harvest of souls. That's not just somebody else's job, but there indeed is this massive harvest. The size of the harvest is incredible. Uh, there's a shortage of workers, but the solution is indeed prayer. prayer. I hope that as a result of this missions conference, every single day, every single day, you will pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. That indeed is the solution. And then fourthly, we talked last night about being joyfully generous and the significance of realizing God wants us to partner with uh, gospel-preaching servants and, and giving toward the, the work of the ministry globally uh, for missions. I hope that that is the case in your heart and life, and maybe even God will do some things in relationship to last night's message in terms of your own stewardship, whether that is how you spend or how you then give, whatever the case may be, or a combination of both, uh, so that you'll be a part of that solution of getting as many people to the mission field as is possible. Tonight we're going to go to Mark chapter 8. Before we do, I want to I make sure you understand the context of this, because this text, it's really important to understand what was going on in the life of Jesus and his disciples. It's, it's fairly early in Jesus' ministry, and it, it's right on the heels of, of Jesus having sent out his disciples in Mark chapter 6 and then returning from, from their own ministry. And, and really it was an amazing ministry in terms of their success. And so you can imagine these fairly new young disciples, and Jesus has trained them to go out, and they, they, they really saw incredible things happen as they ministered, as they preached, as they, they healed, they were able to cast out demons. And, and so imagine that being you, serving the Lord for the very first time, and God's doing amazing things, incredible things. That's what's happening in the, in the background here. And, and not only were there all these miracles that the disciples had to had a, a chance to be a part of, but then also there were multitudes of people that were now following Jesus. As a matter of fact, one of the most common words that you find in Mark chapter 6 and Mark chapter 7 and Mark chapter 8 is the word multitude or the word multitudes. You see it over and over again in 6.33 and 34, chapter 6.45, and 2, 8, 6. So what's being described is that that thousands, if maybe even possibly multiple thousands, because you, you also have the feeding of the 4,000, um, that, that is accounted for in these texts. And so thousands and thousands of people are coming around Jesus. They're thronging around Jesus to hear about him and, and to listen to him and also to, to see if he performs a miracle, honestly. And so multitudes of people are following Jesus. And so there had to be a, an atmosphere of feverish excitement on the part of the disciples. Imagine being one of those 12. God's used you in amazing ways. Now thousands of people are following your master. And it all kind of culminates in Mark chapter 8, 27 through 30, when Jesus says to his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they go on to explain who men say to the, the, that Jesus was. And then he says, well, who do you say I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, which is a, was an amazing and bold statement of belief on the part of Peter. That Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so what, a, what an amazing statement that was. And yet, as you jump into the text in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, there's a, a, a sudden change after that bold statement, right after and right on the heels of that statement in verse 29, you are the Christ, 
Verse 30 then says, then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And then in verse 31, there's this big change. Because in verse 31 of of Mark chapter 8, the Bible says this, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That doesn't really jibe in the hearts and the minds of the disciples with what had been happening up to this point. Miracles, casting out of demons, preaching and people responding, thousands of people following after Jesus, and all of a sudden he says, and I'm going to die. And so Peter, being the, the, the apostle or the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth, rebukes Jesus. Can you imagine the gall to actually rebuke Jesus? Verse 32 puts it this way, he spoke this word openly, then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. It wasn't that Peter didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ, it wasn't that all of a sudden he changed his mind, Jesus just wasn't the kind of Christ that he wanted. He wanted the kind of Christ that, that thousands upon thousands of people would, would follow. He wanted the kind of Christ that would be a revolutionary, perhaps to overthrow the government of Rome. That was the kind of Christ that he wanted. And yet Jesus was explaining the kind of Christ I am is the one that was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53 that has to die for the sins of mankind. And he didn't like that. And so Jesus rebuked him. Can you imagine being the disciples of that moment? I can't help but think that they sat in stunned silence, wondering, what next? We thought Jesus was going to be this revolutionary. We thought the whole nation of Israel was going to gather behind him. And his, their idea of Jesus was turning out to be significantly different than what Jesus said he had to do by dying on the cross. How would you have responded to have listened to Peter be rebuked by Jesus and Jesus be so straightforward with him as to say, get behind me, Satan. I can't imagine that they said anything. Probably they probably just sat there. Maybe they were tempted to go crawling back to their nets or back to their tax collector's booth or or, or, or even wondered if, if they really should even continue to follow Jesus. While the disciples probably sat in shocked silence realizing that most of his disciples were grappling, grappling internally with what what it means to follow him, Jesus made something very, very clear. He made something very clear about what it means to follow Jesus Christ when he makes the statement in verse 34 that I want to focus our attention on tonight. Mark chapter 8, verse 34, and when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, and follow me. What he said was a stark contrast to what the disciples thought. It's not about multitudes, it's not about all these miracles, it's not about everything going so wonderfully well and and simply and and easily. Following me is altogether different than that. And he made this bold statement about what real discipleship looks like. It looks like this. Whoever desires to really follow me, to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And Jesus calls us to the same kind of discipleship today. A discipleship of surrender. Why were people following Jesus at that point in time? Why were the multitudes coming out to see and hear Jesus? They, they wanted to see a miracle. 
Maybe they wanted to be fed. I mean, this was an amazing spectacle of sorts that attracted the multitudes. And so perhaps they even followed Jesus and came to listen to Jesus because he was very confrontational. After all, he was putting the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders of the day that they didn't altogether appreciate. He was putting them in their place. Wouldn't you like to be there to hear that? And so they followed him perhaps because of his confrontational nature and relationship to the religious leaders, but they also followed him because they were hoping he would be a revolutionary. That he would overthrow Rome and and usher in the kingdom in a a radical form. And yet, Jesus Christ didn't didn't say that about what his plan was. And, And I can't help but think of that in connection with why do people follow Jesus today? Why were people following Jesus then? And why do people follow Jesus today? The tendency is for us to follow Jesus for the benefits. And these aren't, these aren't wrong, okay? In terms of part of why we follow Jesus Christ is because of the eternal life and the forgiveness of sins that he, that he promises to us. Others maybe follow Jesus because of the prospect of an, answered prayer or, or promises like, I will never leave you nor forsake you, the companionship of, of being with the Lord, or maybe even the social benefits of fellowship within the body of Christ and the family of God, some of those benefits. But what if someone proposed the following about following Jesus, that you'll have to give up everything you want. That following Jesus means giving up everything you want. That following Jesus Christ means being willing to endure suffering, ridicule, and possibly death. And that following Jesus means that you will have to do whatever he wants with your life like you were a slave. That doesn't sound very popular, does it? That doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? But that's exactly what Jesus says here in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. When he says, if you want to come after me, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, Christ was calling his disciples then and he's calling us now to real discipleship, to a life of real discipleship. It's how he wants us to live. A life of real discipleship. Because after all, only real disciples will take the gospel to the untold billions. Only people who are willing to say, yes, that's what I want to do to follow Jesus Christ. Only they will take the gospel to the untold billions. And so tonight, I want us to to think in terms of the demands of discipleship. The demands of discipleship. Notice with me those three demands. First of all, the first demand is that self is denied. Jesus put it very plainly when he said, if someone wants to come after me, let him deny himself. And it's important for us to understand the meaning of the words that Jesus uses there. The word deny itself means to, to disown, to, to, to disassociate with, to, to separate from. And it, it is the word that gets used later on in reference to Peter's denial. It's the same Greek word. It's found there in Matthew 26, verse 34, and verse 70, and verse 72, and verse 74, when, when Jesus, first of all, predicts and tells Peter that he's going to deny him, and then Peter actually does that three times. He denies, he, he disassociates with, he says, I don't even, I don't even know him, I have, I have nothing to do with him. It's that idea, but in this case, in this, in this context, it's in reference to denying self, and so it's disassociating with or, or disowning or, or separating 
from yourself. Well, how do you do that? How do you deny yourself? You understand that when the Bible speaks of that, it's, it's not denial of self in terms of identity, but it's denial of self in terms of independence. Denial of self in terms of independence. Self refers to your, your sinful, fallen, rebellious, fleshly self. And that part of you which wants to do its own thing that you struggle with, that I know I struggle with every single day. Because every single day I want to do what I want to do. And yet to be a Christ follower means not to do what I want to do. To be a Christ follower is to be someone who does what God wants him to do, what Jesus Christ wants him to do. And so Christ calls us to deny ourselves, to live for him, to live the Christian life is to live the life of self-denying discipleship. Denying self is not just an occasional act. It is a disciplined lifestyle. It's not just giving up something for Lent or giving up something else for some other purpose. It's not that type of self-denial. It is a way of life. In a very real sense, denying self is really dying to self. It's being, being focused on living completely for Christ and not living for yourself. I remember hearing a, a friend of mine who was struggling with making a ministry change in his life and and whether or not it was God's will for him to follow and follow the Lord into a different path of, of ministry. And one of the things he said in that context was he would not make the decision in reference to that until he had no will of his own. He had no will of his own. And I think that kind of captures this idea of self-denial is to not have a will of your own. And so Jesus didn't, didn't call you to think less about yourself. Jesus didn't call you to think less of yourself. He called you to not think about yourself at all. That's the life of self-denial, to not think about yourself at all. And understand, this is so countercultural, right? I mean, it's so countercultural, it's so counterintuitive, even in terms of how we want to live our lives, because we want to live our lives for ourselves. And so real discipleship is the polar opposite of, of consumer Christianity that is so popular within American Christianity, where people think of themselves as consumers, where really Christianity, maybe even the church, is all about what they get out of it. That's the opposite of what Jesus is saying. It's the opposite of what's in it for me. I mean, even the way people pick churches... They, they pick churches based on, well, do I like the preacher? Do I like the pastor? Are the people friendly? Do they have a nice nursery? Do they have a good youth ministry? Do they have good music? Do they have this and that? And Do I enjoy this and do I like that? And it's all about me instead of, can I serve in that church? How could I impact other people for Christ through that church? And so it's all backwards. And that's not just true of the, of the selection of a church, but many people live their Christian life based upon the benefits of what they'll get out of it instead of the demands of what they ought to give back to it. Jesus here is speaking in terms of demands. Not living for self, but living for the Savior. If you've not read, yet read the book Radical by David Platt, I would commend it to you because most of that book is expanding on these very ideas of what it means to really be a follower of Christ, a true disciple. And he says the following in that book. He says, quote, We are settling for a Christianity that revolves around catering to ourselves. When the central message of Christianity is actually about abandoning ourselves. That's what Jesus is saying here. And then he goes on to say the following. Jesus is saying, don't follow me for the benefits. Follow me despite the demands. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not about the benefits, about the demands. And so the implications of this are, are really powerful in, in terms of how we live our Christian lives because the idea of living for the Savior and denying self it should radically change our priorities. 
In terms of what's important is not a matter of what's important to me. It's a matter of what's important to the Savior. How I spend my time, how I spend my life. It's not about really my time and my life at all. It's really about his time and his life. And his life being lived out through me. And so it should change our priorities in relationship to our, our, our service and, and how we spend everything. How we spend all of what we do. At the core of every priority is a decision about who reigns in your heart. Self or the Savior. And so... Implications are significant in, in relationship to change priorities, but also in relationship to service. If the church was full of self-denying disciples, there would be no shortage of willing workers. You would never have to make an appeal, Pastor Gary, of the fact that you need more people to help in this ministry or more people to help in that ministry because they'd all be saying, ooh, ooh pick me. I want to do that for the Lord. And yet there is a shortage of workers in every church because so many people are living for themselves instead of living for the Savior. And the same is true when it comes to missions. If the church was full of self-denying disciples, there wouldn't be a shortage of missionaries like we talked about earlier in the week. So the discipleship demands a denial of self. It's a lifestyle of denial, not a sporadic self-denial every now and then, but a true lifestyle. And one of the greatest hindrances of being willing to listen to God's call to take the gospel to the untold billions is an unwillingness to deny yourself. So I would ask you tonight, are you living for yourself? Or is there something in your life that you're living for that you know is representative of yourself? that is keeping you from fully surrendering to God. Jesus said, if, if, you wanna, if you want to follow me, if you want to come after me, self-denial is demanded. Self is denied. Secondly, suffering is expected. Notice how Jesus goes on to explain that in verse 34 of Mark chapter 8 when he says this, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. That's a powerful statement that I think maybe is lost on us as modern readers and hearers, to take up your cross. That is not a reference to the common trials or troubles of life. I don't know about you, but I've heard people say, well, I guess that's my cross to bear in life. Excuse my poor southern accent if you have a southern accent, okay? But I literally, literally, and maybe that's because I've heard southerners say it more than anybody, okay? I guess that's my, my cross to bear in life, okay? You know, and they talk about their, their, their you know, Aunt, Aunt Susie's bunions on her feet or something like that. I guess that's her cross to bear life type of routine. That's not what the Bible is talking about here. It's not some problem that you have, whether it's your bunions or, or some other difficult situation in life. That's not your cross to bear in life. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Not the common problems of life. What it means is this. The cross to bear in life, the cross was a symbol a, a visual constant reminder in the first century of suffering, of reproach, of shame, and ultimately a horrific death. The cross was a reminder of that. Crucifixion was the Romans' favored form of capital punishment. Some have estimated that over the course of the lifespan of Jesus, approximately 33, 33 years, over that lifespan, as many as 30,000 people may have died in Israel by crucifixion. 
There were that many crucifixions going on. It was their favorite form of capital punishment. So when Jesus made the statement, the crowd would have immediately visualized a condemned criminal carrying a cross to the place of execution. Many of them would have already witnessed such crucifixions, or if they hadn't witnessed them firsthand, they heard about them as other people told them of the horrific spectacle that a crucifixion was. So they would have visualized a condemned person carrying a cross to the place of execution. They would imagine that man being spat upon. They would have pictured that individual being mocked and laughed at and beaten and ultimately killed. Understand that the the crucifixion of Christ was, was unique in its merit, okay? The sinless Son of God was dying for the sins of mankind. And, and God the Father had to turn his back on God the Son. And so it was, it was unique in that merit, but it was not unique in that Jesus, Jesus wasn't the only person who was crucified. 30,000 people. Just in that short span of 30 plus years. And so it was a common thing in that day. They would have visualized that humiliation. They would have visualized someone carrying their own instrument of execution on their back. It's part of why they had them carry their own cross. Their own instrument of execution so that then they mocked them as they did so. Of course, you understand probably from other messages about the crucifixion of, the, of, of Christ that it involved exc- excruciating torture. And that normally it would take days for the person who was being crucified to die. And they would die eventually of a combination of dehydration and suffocation when their strength ran out to the point where they could no longer lift themselves up enough to take their next breath. That's what they would have pictured. When Jesus said that if you want to follow me, you must be willing to take up your cross. What he was saying was this, real disciples are willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. Even to the point of death, if necessary. A real disciple is willing to to start their own death march, so to speak toward horrible humiliation and ridicule and being misunderstood and pain and perhaps even death. That's what Jesus was saying. If you want to follow me, you must be willing to face this. One person put it this way. Not every disciple is called to be martyred, but every disciple is commanded to be willing to be martyred. That's what Jesus was saying. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, put it this way. When Christ calls a man... He bids him come and die. Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You you know that the news has been filled the last probably 10 plus years with Christians being killed, especially in the Middle East and in other primarily Islamic countries. Uh, One of the stories, news stories, that really grabbed my attention was a few years ago when 21 professing Christians were, were killed by by uh, people in, in Libya. And uh, that was broadcast on, on te- television, and some of that video was even released. Uh, and it was a horrific scene as that was released to the world. Uh, but those who killed the 21 individuals made a statement that I thought was, was pretty powerful. Those who killed these 21 Christians said the following. They said, quote, it was a, quote, message signed with blood to the nation of the cross the nation of the cross. 
Now, they may have been referring to the United States because of their perception that the United States is a Christian nation, but that's a pretty, pretty bold statement for unbelieving Muslims to refer to really Christians more than, than the United States as the nation of the cross. They understand the significance of the cross. We are the nation of the cross. We are the people of the cross as followers of Christ. As followers of Christ who are, who are willing to, to suffer if that's what he calls us to do. If Muslims get it, why don't we? Why don't we? Are we living to really live for Christ no matter what we may have to suffer by doing so? Most Christians idealistically say they would die for Christ, but many realistically are barely living for Christ. So he calls us to be willing to suffer. The call to discipleship demands a willingness to suffer. You see, the missionary army that God is enlisting to take the gospel to the untold billions must be an army of soldiers who are willing to die. Willing to suffer. That's what it means to bear your cross. The demand of suffering being expected. And the finally, final demand is that surrender is mandated. Surrender is mandated. And it's found in just that little short two-word phrase when he says this near the end of the verse, and follow me. Follow me. The very idea of following is an idea of surrender. It's an idea of, of, of submission. The, the third demand is it's really the culmination, you understand, of the first two. Because a person's not willing to, to really do this until they, they're willing to do the other. And so not until a person has denied self and taken up the cross will they really follow Jesus. And so to follow is to, to, to in, a, in a full-time sense, it's a full-time proposition that because the, mo- the moment you stop following Jesus a little bit, you aren't following Jesus at all. And so he calls us to follow, he calls us to surrender, he calls us to submit. You understand, surrender demands giving up. The very idea, when we, when we say surrender, we, we visualize somebody holding up their hands, so to speak, and, and, and surrendering, it means giving up. And so when he says to follow me, that's exactly what he means, is to surrender. Giving up perhaps our plans or our dreams or, or things we want to do for ourselves and instead of doing what, what God wants us to do fully and completely and surrendering to him. David Platt, in that same book that I mentioned earlier, uh, makes the following statement in re- relationship to surrender and the type of Christianity that, uh, that maybe we've fallen into. It's a fairly long quote, so bear with me as I, I read a pretty significant portion of it. But he, he says this in that book entitled Radical. He says, and this is where we need to pause. Because we are starting to redefine Christianity. We are giving in to the dangerous temper, temptation to take the Jesus of the Bible and twist him into a version of Jesus we are more comfortable with. A nice middle-class American Jesus, a Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and who would never call us to give away everything we have, a Jesus who would not expect us to forsake our closest relationships so that he receives all of our affection, a Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts because, after all, he loves us just the way we are, a Jesus who wants to be balanced, who wants to avoid dangerous extremes, and who, for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. 
But do you and I realize what we are doing at this point? We are molding Jesus into our image. He's beginning to look a lot like us because, after all, that is whom we are most comfortable with. And the danger now is that when we gather in our church building to sing and lift our hands and worship, we may not actually be worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. Instead, we may be worshiping ourselves. Understand what he's saying? Is that if we're not really willing to surrender, if we're not really willing to follow the Jesus of the Bible, but yet we give him lip service, as if we are, we're taking Jesus and turning him into this, this middle class, make me happy and, and do things my way, have it your way kind of Christianity instead of the kind of Christianity that says, no, I'm willing to do whatever Jesus wants. I'm willing to give all. I'm willing to surrender fully and completely to him. That's what Jesus is calling us to do when he says, follow me. Follow me. Are you truly surrendered to that kind of Jesus? Perhaps some of you are familiar with the story of William Borden. The more I read about this account, I read just a brief little snippet of it years ago, but the more I read about the details of his life, it's, it's powerful because it speaks to me. And I trust it speaks to you. William Borden, some of you may recognize that name because I remember as a kid we would get uh, little cans of milk that had Borden on it, sweetened condensed milk or something like that. Uh, the Borden family has been a, a very wealthy family for many, many years, and, and the Borden Dairy was a very wealthy company. And so William Borden was the heir of the Borden Dairy fortune, and he graduated from Yale University with the prospect of you know, taking over the family business and being extremely wealthy and a wonderful career. But, but Borden, William Borden surrendered his life to Christ. He trusted Christ as his Savior and sensed God's call to the mission field instead of to the family business. And so he immediately surrendered his life to the Lord and began to take the steps necessary to to, to follow God's leading. His burden was for a a small group of Muslims that lived in China. And so he left to go to Egypt to learn Arabic because he wanted to reach those Muslims in China for Christ. But while he was in China, he he contracted spinal meningitis. And with Within a month of arriving, or not, not while he was in China, while he was in Egypt, but, and within a month of arriving in Egypt, 25-year-old William Borden was dead and with the Lord. After he died, though, they found the following words penned in his Bible that I think really capture the essence of the surrendered life. He had written the following. Simply this, no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. No reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. He went to the grave at age 25, living a surrendered life that was truly a life of no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets because he was following Jesus Christ. His life was fully surrendered to Christ. And so I would ask you tonight, is your life fully surrendered to Christ? Are you a real disciple? Are you living for yourself or are you living for the Savior? Are you you really willing to suffer no matter what that might look like in the context of what God asks of you? And are you fully surrendered? Because only 
real disciples will take the gospel to the untold billions. Will you be one of those disciples?